0: Today is February twenty-fourth, 2022, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the Neuroscience Research podcast. Today we're talking to Caitlin Orsini. She's Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychology and the Department of Neurology in the Wagner Center for Alcohol and Addiction Research at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. Hope I got all of that right. You did. And Caitlin studies decision-making, especially risky or maladaptive decision-making. And I think we'll get a clear idea about what that means as we go along. And she's working on the brain circuits that participate in this kind of decision-making, the effects of hormones, substance use disorder on the decision process. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you for joining
1: us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: In the room, we have some adaptive risk takers. Uh, Matt, Matt Wanett and Isabel Muzio are local experts on why we like what we like. And do what we do. And I'm Charlie Wilson. Oh, Matt, say hi. 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 And Isabel. Hello. Okay. well, I'm the non-expert in the room. So I'll ask the non-expert question. And in your experiments, animals make choices between safe and risky rewards. And you divide the decision process into three phases, uh, deliberation, choice, and outcome. I I know there's another set of words for the same three phases. but. we can live with those, okay? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so, what um, what's actually happening in, in each of what do those words mean? What deliberation, like I, I know what it means sort of casually, but as a scientific term. And so, what do each of them uh, mean? What's happening in the during the phases, and uh, and then that'll help us get started thinking about what's going on in the brain during each one of those three phases. Uh, so that we can think about how a risky decision might actually take place.
1: Sure. So um, we operationalize these different phases by basically trying to understand what conceptually is happening during. So for during de- deliberation, this is when we think about, you know, what are the different options that are available? What are the different choices that are available? What has happened in the past that can use us to in, that we can use to inform our understanding of these options, and the, and also what are what what is our motivational state in that moment that tends that can bias our preference for one versus the other. So one example I like to give is if we are particularly hungry or thirsty in that moment, perhaps we would be more motivated towards choosing one option over the other. Um, In this, so that's deliberation. In in the choice phase, that's really when we think about action selection, so this is when you have decided what you want and you um, engage in that action. And then in the third phase of the decision process that we like to think about is this outcome evaluation. So this is when the action has happened and we evaluate was it what we had expected? Was it worse? Was it better? You know, how would we make a different choice in the future? So that's kind of how we conceptualize the different parts of the decision process. So
0: you said expected. So is it fair to say that the, an animal, in your experiment, has to have a model of the task, and then has to execute that model to make a prediction, and then has to compare that prediction to what really happens?
1: That, I mean, that's one of the ways that we are thinking about how animals are making decisions in our task. They are very well trained in this task, so they know, you know, when they're asked to make a choice between different options, what is associated with each of them. And so in terms of expected, you know, if they are rewarded that, you know that is meeting their expectations. But perhaps if, if, for example, in what we study, a foot shock also occurs, maybe they weren't expecting that. So they are engaging in this task kind of according to a model that they've learned, but um, there are certain times when we have these un- unexpected adverse consequences. And that does not fit with, those ex- with that kind of expected model.
0: So the model is a predictive Yes. model. An animal has to predict a bunch of outcomes, and then uh, in this action selection phase, some, one of the outcomes is deemed better than the others, and that one is chosen somehow. Is that, yes. is that yes. what action selection is? Because mm-hmm. that part seems to go really fast.
1: It is. It's very fast. Um, and. You know, we have we spent a lot more time looking at, you know, this deliberation or outcome evaluation phase, um, but the action selection is is very fast. Um, How
0: do we know those two are really separate? I mean, you can imagine if I was making a machine, I might make a machine that mm-hmm. goes, well, make me a list of all the things I could do and what the outcomes would be, and then pass that list to the next stage, and the next stage would would say, mm-hmm. oh, that's obviously a better outcome. But whether the when i make decisions i don't really feel like i'm doing that
1: yeah no i th- i mean that's a great point point. and for a long time i i mean that's how i actually thought thought about it we didn't really start to think about what's what's going into each part of uh, of a decision an individual decision um and it is not linear it's you know it, they feed back on it on it feeds back on one another so it's it is really hard to kind of pull them apart so it's you know, with especially with rats when they are um engaging in these tasks so quickly with a with an action selection, it's it's very hard to just kind of capture that.
0: Experimentally it turns I- out to just be a, a moment in time.
1: Yes. I have a follow up question,
2: especially about the deliberation period mm-hmm. because I would like to know in the context of, and perhaps you can remind the audience and explain your task a little bit because they, they didn't hear your talk, but it's a very interesting task and I am wondering about the deliberation period because in some, some of these decision-making labs like David Reddish in which, you know, he trains rats in a maze and the, the rats have to choose between going right or left for different amounts of reward or different outcomes. Uh, the deliberation period he defines as the period when the animal is kind of twitching the head as if the animal were thinking should i go right should i go left and then he you know correlates that with neuronal activity and it seems that there is some prospective coding at least at the level of the striatum that says you know if the cells that correlate with the right position fire the animal tends to go there but in the context of your Task is the time frame that you call the liberation period, is is tied to a specific behavior of the rat. Um, I don't know.
1: So, um, so for the audience, the the task that um, we use in my lab is a risk-based decision-making task or risky decision-making task in which rats are given a choice between a small uh, safe lever, so a lever that delivers a food reward. Um, with no other in, in consequences. The, the other choice is this larger food reward, but it's associated with risk of foot shock punishment, and that risk can vary across the session. So starting with 0%, going up 25, 50, and ending at 100%. For the deliberation period, we define that as when we indicate that a trial has started. So a light will turn on in the box, and um, they need to nose poke into that, in, into where the light is, mm-hmm. and hold that for, hold their nose in there for a period of time until the levers extend. So we define it as um, the period when the light turns on until the levers extend and they make their choice. Um, so th- that's how we define deliberation. Okay.
3: I'm curious. So a lot of times, and I mean, we're sort of confined by a lot of times the operant boxes that we're using. But, you know, our choices often are not binary in the real world, and it isn't safe or risky. And sometimes there might be a safe, and then there might be a low risk, and then there might be a high risk. Mm. And I'm curious, you know, has anybody or any of your work sort of looked at being able to have that sort of extra choice option in there to see how animals might respond and... Yeah, or does your task sort of already get at that element um, by changing risk categories? And so uh, you had a really good example in your uh, in your talk of saying, you know, do you text when you drive? Of course, nobody here is texting when they're driving. But you know, I've heard kids might be doing it these days. Um, But you know, there's a potential reward of you know you got the ding and you see something's going on. But there's sort of a, a risk associated with that. But you know, there's. You know, sort of gradations of this, of glancing versus I'm going to bring it up to my face and I'm not going to be seeing, you know, the the road at all. And so I guess has there been any attempt to maybe try and look at different gradations of risk and how you can sort of potentially uh, examine that in sort of behavioral tasks?
1: So in in rodent behavior, there are some um, decision-making, risk-based decision-making tasks that look kind of at varying um, options in terms of how, whether they're optimal or not. So Catherine Lynn Stanley uses a rodent gambling task where there are five options and one is the most optimal or one is the least advantageous. One is a little bit better, you know, so there are these gradations, um, but not necessarily with kind of this risk of explicit punishment, which is what we incorporate in my task. And I can't, I don't think anyone else has done that. I think it's a fair point. Um, we try to capture that by looking at as the the rat moves through the session looking at you know 0% so no risk 25% perhaps that's low risk 75% is higher risk but not kind of concurrent choices and i think that's a that's a good point but the only one that i can really think of is is used in this kind of gambling task where i think they have four or five options and they can choose between them but what they, what they tend to see is that after training these animals, they tend to always choose kind of the most optimal one, um, but they haven't looked at kind of differences in kind of the gradations of risk. Um, that's a really good point.
2: I have a, a question. It's a general question. The human literature has shown, and your data also suggests that, that there are some subjects that are high risk takers versus others that are low risk takers. Um, and your data also show that that determines, you know, degrees of drug addiction. Uh, Do you know if this is some aspect that can be modifiable in these subjects through learning, or is it something that is just innate and cannot be modifiable?
1: I think that's a great question, and that's actually a question that um, we are, are really trying to think about in the lab because ultimately, you we we try to identify high risk individuals for example for progressing to substance use and how can you kind of maybe get them off of that path. Um we some things that we've thought about and that people are are doing are providing additional environmental enrichment so you can cause at least in the in the context of um, not necessarily risk taking but impulsive choice so in delay discounting so there we're choosing between a small immediate reward, something that happens immediately, and a larger reward that happens at a longer delay. Mm-hmm. So, impulsive choice or just preference for that smaller immediate reward has also been linked to um, prevalent or propensity for substance use. And providing um, an environmental enrichment or kind of social interactions does, um, you know, reduce impulsive choice. So the, those kinds of interactions may be able to modify what we consider maybe individual differences or traits. Um, we haven't, I don't, to my knowledge, haven't gone on to see whether that actually makes a difference in this, you know, drug self-administration, but I think it has an important implications for that.
3: Along those lines, do you see any sort of sex differences in risk-taking, and does that potentially map onto any sex differences you might see in rodent models of substance use disorders?
1: Yeah, so in, in the tasks that we use in the lab, there are um, very large sex differences. So females are much more risk-averse than males, so that means that they they prefer the risk, the safe option, much more than the risk-taking option. Um, what makes it a little bit tricky, though, is that when you look at the substance abuse literature, um, females are a much higher. All females are a much kind of higher risk for um, or in elements of substance use. So they um, increase their intake at a greater rate than males. They're at higher rate of relapse than males. So at first glance, this greater risk aversion in females don- doesn't necessarily fit with. Um, what we, what you see or read about sex differences in substance use, um, but I can say that um, there are, as, as Isabel was saying, there are these individual differences, and females that are um, higher risk-taking than maybe their lower risk counterparts, you do see correlations with greater. Intake um, greater escalation, so you know it, I think it varies a little bit when you're looking at individual differences rather than um, group means. If that makes if that makes sense, um, we've also looked at the the converse: does do drugs of abuse affect decision making in males and females? And um, we see that it affects males and females comparably. So. Drugs of abuse like cocaine and opioids can increase risk taking um, in both males and females to a similar extent. So, despite you know these baseline sex differences that we see, um, you can see correlations between risk taking and aspects of drug use and effects of drugs on risk taking in both sexes.
0: So that raises a sort of question of the direction of causality in the between drug use and risk taking. Absolutely, maybe. Yeah. Uh, People become drug users because they're risk takers, but maybe they become risk takers because they're drug users.
1: Yes, and there's you know that's the chicken and the egg question, and um, there, it's it clearly I think it, there's it, it's both, um, and whether those that are more predisposed um, with you know greater risk taking are more affected, you see greater a greater magnitude in risk taking following substances. We haven't done those kinds of experiments. Um, but you know we've kind of shown on both sides that it's a you know behavioral phenotype that can confer vulnerability, but it's also can be a consequence of drug use that may um, confer vulnerability to relapse. That's kind of how I actually think about it.
0: So at this point, it's sort of descriptive, but you're not satisfied with that. You're actually studying the brain mechanisms and and interfering in the process mm-hmm. and uh, so I'd like to us to kind of go on to that so yeah. if you're uh, I understand that people who study these kinds of tasks consider that the decision-making network consisting of things like the amygdala or the striatum People who study sensory discrimination think that decisions are being made in the sensory Mm -hmm. cortex and people who study other things think the decisions are being made somewhere else. So are there lots of decision making mechanisms in the brain and and they get sorted out by what the decision is about. And this is and you're studying one of them that has to do with, you know, direct reward, primary kind of rewards and punishments or and the if we moved off to some other kind of task, we might see decisions being made somewhere else.
1: I think um, I, I don't think that different tasks or different types of decisions are mediated by different brain regions or networks. Um, I I think you know we the brain regions like the amygdala and the striatum and the prefrontal cortex they're all important for kind of these different, like I was saying, these different kind of components in the decision process, how they may contribute may differ depending on the cost that's involved. So for example, we were just talking about risk of punishment or risk of explicit consequences. But that that seems to be different than risk of reward omissions. So if there's a possibility you're not going to get rewarded. Uh, and the way that the some of these brain regions mediate or communicate can differ depending on the cost. And I say that because some of the effects that we see when we you know tinker with the amygdala, we see you know effects on behavior in one direction, but using a different task, we see effects in a different direction. So the those brain regions are still involved but maybe encoding or representing the cost differently. Um, And I think understanding, integrating all of that information together helps you build a better picture of how the brain can computationally make these decisions.
0: So what do we know about that? I mean, as a way to summarize what we've learned about that circuit and how it works.
1: So to just give you a general, I could probably talk for hours about that. Um, but so most of my work is focused on the amygdala, uh, so the basolateral amygdala. And um, what we, see based on our data, know that that this brain region is really important for kind of integrating the really good things about a decision as well as the costs that are associated with, with um, those choices. And that information is conveyed downstream to brain regions like the nucleus accumbens, um, to provide information about, you know, feedback that's happened in the past, so things that, these costs, to then help us make choices that perhaps are a little bit safer. So the amygdala isn't just about bad things? is just not about bad things. I mean, it is, is, you know, it is involved in fear learning, it's involved in aversive learning, but, it is, it is very much involved in a lot, a lot of other very complicated higher order tasks. And there's been a lot of work in the last five or 10 years showing that's the, that that's mediated by different connections to brain regions, um, like the striatum or the, the central amygdala. Um, so it's not just bad things, it's good things, and then it's a combination of the two.
3: So do you view the, and maybe it's the way that you had that slide, um, and we all have our brain regions of choice, but um, you know the basal amygdala as sort of this central focal point by which all this information—and you use that sort of a central node—and then it gets dispersed out to other brain regions and can potentially influence different aspects of the decision-making process, whether it's in the deliberative phase or in the outcome phase. Um, but what's upstream of that what what is driving the basal lateral of the amygdala here and is it a bunch of sort of recurrent connections between these different brain regions and yeah, I mean, if it is sort of a central node, what's feeding into the basal ladder of the amygdala that allows it to, you know, a brain region doesn't subserve one function. It can have a role in sort of, uh, you know, aversive conditioning, as well as, you know, appetitive behaviors and, uh, you know, assessing uh, potential of risk, as your data has shown.
1: Yeah, the way that I displayed that does make it look like it's like kind of the central hub. And I do think that it is it is really important for integrating a lot of information, but information has to come from somewhere. so. Some of, the, some of our hypotheses are, for example, the insular cortex, the anterior insular cortex, which is this interoceptive brain region. Um, is conveying information to the amygdala. There is also, I believe there's this reciprocal interaction between the, the basolateral amygdala and areas of the prefrontal cortex that are constantly going on to modify, for example, kind of what our expected outcomes are. So the way that I, I do present it is as if it's, you know, the central, this where everything is going on. Um, and I acknowledge that it's not, but I do think it's really important for kind of a lot of this integration that happens that then can go down, that can be sent to regions like the nucleus accumbens um, to kind of you know, help bias choice. Um, go ahead.
2: I was going to say that the way the discussion is going is like the basolateral admittal is a is hub, but I was, trying to go back to the point that Charlie made. Maybe that's based on the type of task and associations that your animals are making, because in your task, the animals see a light and they have to decide between a positive outcome mm-hmm. and a, or a, uh, that uh, the size of a positive outcome and one that implies high risk or not. But, for example, if you were associating... Um, rather than having an electrical shock, you were presenting uh, a predator odor. I am pretty sure that the medial amygdala would be the hub region that incorporates those elements. So I don't know if we can say that there is a particular region that is Mm -hmm. the hub of all these associations. Perhaps it's the modality of the associations that determines which hub will be the one that plays a more prevalent role for the type of task that you are running. Um, I'm not sure if everybody agrees, but I think that there is quite a lot of evidence that different subregions of the amygdala uh, appear to have more or less importance depending on on modalities. And we cannot forget that the lateral region receives all the inputs, and we know the shock has to go to the (laughs) the lateral there. So um, understanding all these microcircuits may be really important to really define with clarity what is going on at every stage of the decision-making process, which is a very complex complex task. Very, um,
3: even, right?
2: yeah. And
3: we, could you talk about the neural recordings you had? Because it was really kind of striking of where you saw that there was activity and where there wasn't activity in your task. And I think that... It,
0: when, when there was and when there wasn't.
3: But, at
0: what stage in the task?
1: Yeah, the, at what yeah, yeah, stage
0: sorry. of the task. Yeah.
1: Right. So, um, in some data that I presented, this was a task that um, uh, we modified slightly, where we were ha- where rats were asked to choose between a large reward and a small reward um, in one set of trials, and then in a the second set of trials, choosing between a safe reward and a risky reward. The reward amount was the same, but the only difference was that there was a risk of shock associated with one of them. Um, And so we were able to record electrical activity in the amygdala. And what we saw, and it was very selective to the the risk block, so when animals were choosing between the safe and risky, is that there is this... Increase in amygdala firing during the delivery of this risky outcome. So not necessarily when the shock was was delivered. We took out those trials, but just when it was a reward that was associated that the rats had learned that was associated with risk. So we've you know start thinking about it as kind of this ability of these neurons to really represent, you know, the salience or the, the risk salience that's associated with the this option. We only saw this, again, during the delivery of the risky outcome, so not anything to do with reward magnitude or even kind of in anticipation, which is a little bit different than, you know, what you were mentioning with Dave Reddish's work of kind of anticipatory activity. Um, but it does kind of fit nicely with some of the you know the work that we've done when we can actually go in and you know shut down the amygdala during these distinct time points, and see that that also can causally affect behavior.
0: Why not say something about the time points and the amygdala's role in at the different phases?
1: Right. So with um, our the optogenetic, optogenetic manipulations that we use, we can actually go in and um, inhibit the amygdala during the different time points that I talked about earlier. Um, so during deliberation um, versus when outcomes are delivered. And to our surprise, you get different effects on risky choice when you inhibit the amygdala during deliberation versus during out this outcome period. And so when you inhibit the amygdala during this deliberation period, you see animals prefer that safer option more but when you inhibit the amygdala during the delivery of this risky outcome it makes them even more risky so this suggests that even across a single trial which lasts can last anywhere between 20 to 30 seconds the amygdala is is it's being its activity is being recruited in a different way and we think that may, maybe it had that's being mediated by kind of distinct or different projections or, or interactions the amygdala has with other areas in this circuit.
0: So if you try to map the amygdala onto the, the sort of making a model of the options mm-hmm. that is going on, then turning it off wouldn't... I mean, now we're not making a model of the options anymore. You might almost think that the animal wouldn't know what to do and wouldn't do anything because I can't I can't do my deliberation. My deliberation is shut down, what can I, I can't decide. That isn't what happens. No. They decide, they're very decisive. Mm -hmm. They just take a risky decision. So how does that, what does that make, the amygdala? What's its job then in that deliberation?
1: So during deliberation, uh, yeah, I mean, we, that was a really, the, the increase in risk aversion so or when we inhibit the amygdala during the um, during deliberation they become much more risk-averse that was a that was quite surprising and it was really hard to kind of fit into um, what we had been thinking about the role of the amygdala and uh, in, in decision-making and so one one way that we've started to think about it is it's really important in a tr- in considering the options and kind of attributing its incentive salience. So kind of the, how much, what's the most valuable um, uh, option in those cases? And, um, you know, it's, we're still kind of trying to figure out what it actually means, but that's kind of one way that we're thinking about it. And it'll, the the kind of salience attributed to these different options really varies when it's, low risk or high risk.
0: Because in my like naivest opinion, knowing nothing except what I read in the paper about the amygdala, I would think, Of course, amygdala is all about bad things. And so you take it out and the amygdala goes, Ah don't worry, everything is fine. I I don't I don't recommend the safe thing the, the safe thing at all. So if the amygdala is the if its job is to evaluate how bad things are and you take it offline, then everything seems good. Is that crazy?
2: But if everything seems good, you wouldn't see a preference towards the highest reward. They should show random responses, right? Uh She sees selective preference to the highest reward. So I still think that there is a memory component. I know that we spoke about this, but during any decision, I was thinking when you were giving your lecture, whenever I have to make a decision, and I am evaluating between two outcomes. I try to remember, this outcome is associated with what? This outcome is associated mm-hmm. with what? So essentially, you are recruiting memory systems. And if the amygdala is important to associate that the high outcome leads to something aversive, and you remove that but by, by disconnecting the amygdala activity, then the animal only remembers, oh, high reward, low reward, I will go to the high reward because it pays more.
3: Well, maybe your data speaks to this. Um, do you find that, because you, you interspersed some of, of some of the optogenetic trials, right, where you're, you're turning off the amygdala, mm-hmm. do you find that the animals are then sticky with what they did on the previous trial? You know, how does, I, I, you know, when you turn that on, are they just going to persevere on whatever was the previous trial? Because um, that could potentially get at the, uh, maybe, I don't know, in the deliberation phase, I guess the outcome phase, not so much, but, um, if that is taking them offline maybe they're just going to default go towards whatever they did the previous round. I guess do you see any evidence of that or have you, or maybe i'm mis- but then
2: when they make the liaison, on, the animals will remember okay the high outcome is associated with shock, so the the is the deliberation is different
1: yeah. yeah, I think that's a i mean that is a a good quite- a good question um and the You know, the one thing that I I can say is that for when we do our, when we did the lesion work, so this is kind of permanently taking the amygdala offline, you do see elevate, we see elevations in risk-taking, right? So, and so that we kind of across, it's, it's similar to what we see when we do this optogenetic inhibition but when we take those same rats and we now give them we they have bla lesions but now they're asked to choose between rewards of the same of the same size but one is now associated with shock they don't and it, it was the one that was always that was previously associated with shock they now shift their choice to the safe option so there is a, they're able to mm-hmm. learn and re- recall and understand that, you know, that that's no longer the same as before. Does that sort mm-hmm. of help answer your question? Mm-hmm. So if they didn't have that memory, they may continue to choose that. But now, you know, what was once associated with large and risky, it's it's not as good anymore. So they shift to the safer option. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do underst- I do agree that memories play in, into this. Um, so I think that it'll be important to be able to kind of dissect out how to answer those questions.
0: Are positive and negative outcomes stored and encoded in the same neural circuits? Are there circuits that carry information about good things and other circuits that carry information about bad things? Mm -hmm. At one time, it was believed that there were that they were completely separate, that pain and pleasure were carried by entirely different things. Is that, how does it stand with you? Because it seems to me that uh, you're talking about it as if pain is just the absence of pleasure, pleasure just the absence of pain, and you could have anything on, and the same neurons are, are handling both of them.
1: Well, I think, you know, and the the other folks on the on the panel can, chime in as well but I, I think they would well, also pain in some circumstances it can be a good thing can be adaptive so I think dichotomizing that you know is, is, is simplifying it a little bit but if they are not I don't think they're mediated by different circuits they're mediated by similar circuits maybe in some similar cells um, and maybe in, in specific situations, they guide behavior in different ways. Um, I, I don't know what others' thoughts are.
3: Well, well it's a paper that we're, I'm having my students read for a class, but it's one from uh, Richard Palmerder's group where they're looking at CGRP neurons in the parabrachial nucleus. And um, they respond to pain, painful stimuli, a whole range of painful stimuli, but then they are also um, activated when exposed to sort of neophobia or satiation. And so it is sort of saying there are some subsets of cells, I would say, in the brain that do sort of have this, I'm going to respond to pain and shut down like good things, and then you turn it off, it's going to have the opposite effect. But I don't know if I would believe that that would be true across the brain. Like Mm. there, there definitely are some circuits, but I think I mean at least in the the dopamine system it's totally murky where just looking at the cellular activity you know some cells will respond to motivational salience and so whether it is a good stimulus or a bad stimulus or an annoying stimulus of an air puff you will see that the intensity of that stimulus will then you'll see a corresponding gradation in the dopamine neuron firing whereas other neurons will have these sort of classical reward prediction error you know they're going to decrease to aversive stimuli and increase uh to appetitive stimuli so if
0: i just stimulate dopamine neurons you're gonna get a whole bit it. that will feel good mm-hmm. if i if i cause dopamine neurons to stop will that hurt
3: hmm. i think it all depends on the context in I mean, which you you, you have that so i mean i think Yes, you turn, you're you're not going to like it. I mean, if you, you turn the dopamine, you know, condition, place, preference type paradigm, if you turn the dopamine neurons off in one context and do nothing in the other context, you ask the animal which box, which context you want to stay, spend time on, it's going to be on the one where you didn't turn the dopamine system off. Um, I,
2: I think so. I have a little bit of an answer for Charlie, because I agree that there are pathways that process somatosensory information about pain, and those are more exclusive exclusive. But for example, in the hippocampus, which is the area I am more familiar with, there are cells that code spatial properties, and at the same time, they can code rewards or they can code stimuli that have been associated with shock, so with pain. So depending on the learning process, these cells will learn to integrate other features that are task relevant for the animal. So while by themselves, cells, they are not sensory processing cells through so learning, then they tend to integrate this information. And I think that the same happens in the amygdala. So uh, I don't argue that probably there are somatosensory cells that bring that somatosensory experience, and, which is a pure form per, perhaps of a representation of pain or reward, but there are multiple cells in the brain that can integrate. Um, that's my view.
1: And then probably can change and learn over time as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with your view. Um, I don't know. But it's complex. Can you
2: tell us a little bit about what you have learned about the striatum uh, that you presented in your talk and the connectivity with the amygdala?
1: Sure. So um, we also used optogenetic approach to be able to be able to look at the amygdala projections to the nucleus accumbens and what we found was that this pathway is particularly important for providing kind of this negative feedback so during this both during this deliberation period and this outcome evaluation period so it's really important for providing information about you know what was bad that happened in the past to guide choice towards safer options um, we then kind of took a more cell type specific view and started looking at neurons that express uh, d two dopamine receptors. Um, and f- and we can again, um, using bio- viral mediated techniques and um, optogenetics, be able to turn down activity in those neurons. and we, I feel like we're kind of going more narrow and narrow, and what we're finding is that when you inhibit the, this specific cell population during this deliberation period, you also see this increase in risk-taking. So now we're starting to see that specific, a specific cell population um, their activity is really important for deliberation and being able to bias choice towards safer options. And when we turn them off, they become animals become more risky.
3: So, I mean you mentioned the the you're targeting these D2 receptors here, and I mean what do you believe dopamine is potentially doing in the, the nucleus common shell, I believe you were talking about. Mm-hmm to regulate sort of these uh, you know, risk-taking in your behavioral task?
1: I think that's a great question. We haven't, I think it was one of a dream of mine with my former advisor to actually set up voltammetry to record dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. But so, you know, I don't have a, a great answer to that other than to say that it is probably, you know, when, when we are thinking about kind of reward prediction errors probably involved in, in doing something like that and signaling that through D2 dopamine receptors. But I don't have a, a great answer to that because we just, you know, we just don't know. You were just telling me how what you thought, how dopamine was involved in one task is not whatsoever, so I try not to make any strong predictions. Um, but I think using some of the right techniques will help us answer that question.
0: Well, that's, I a, to- that's a great way to end, I think. So uh, thank you, Caitlin. Oh, you're
1: very welcome. And
0: Isabel and Matt. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank
2: you.